When you look at a diamond, the whole thing is a diamond, but there's different facets on a diamond. So two of the facets that I'm looking at this evening about the fruit of the Spirit would be goodness and kindness. I believe that we are born predisposed to be good and to seek out that which is good. I want to read something for you that would reinforce what I just said. This is from an eight-year-old girl. And we have these blue cards, and I carry this with me in my Bible all the time. We have these blue cards at Chattanooga Valley, and they're on the back of the pew. And you just give us your information, and of course we send you things in the mail and try to visit you. But on the back, it says, how can we help you? So this eight-year-old girl, let me tell you a little bit about her. Her mother has four girls, four children, and this is the oldest, eight years old. And the mother is 23. And none of these girls had the same father. And the mother had fallen into hard times. And this, this little girl, all the girls are just precious, you know. The, a, ch a child is just fresh from God. And this is what she wrote. It says, how can we help you? So she says, you can help me by praying you can help me by saying nice things about me. And thank you for helping my mommy. Her name's Lily. Now, the reason she said thank you for helping my mommy is because we gave this uh, young mother a huge grocery shower, some money, and helped her get back on her feet. D did you see her plea for, to be good? Please be good. Pray for us. Say nice things about me. And thank you for helping my mommy. I suspect that Lily would be maybe 12 years old now. I don't know where she is, but I remember that and I always keep that close to my heart because I understand that a child desires that which is good. And a child, as I said, is fresh from God. It's built into us to pursue that which is good and to be good. But oftentimes, the influence around us leads us in a different direction. Well, from Galatians 5, verses 19 through 26, and Ephesians 5, 6 through 10, as you're familiar with these, as all your speakers have referred to them, we understand that being good is a prerequisite to being a good Christian, to being faithful. When I was little and when you were little, did your mother teach you to be good? My mother did. It was through the seat of my pants, but I promise you I learned to be good. And I learned the difference in good and evil. In fact, every time I say the word good, I can't help but confess God. Because, you see, God identifies for us what the standard for good is. If we didn't have the standard that God has given to us, we would not know what good is. It would be something that is determined by every person, what we think is good and what this person thinks good, and it may not be good at all. I'm going to give you the definitions here in just a minute, but one more thing. On, a, uh, on the news, one of the news channels, they were interviewing a, a person who had been a lifelong resident of Chattanooga, and they asked this person what he thought about the many things that were happening in Chattanooga, the many additions, uh, especially the nightclubs, the drinking establishments, and all these things. And he said, I think it's good that Chattanooga can move forward unrestrained by the boundaries of archaic religion. So he saw that the advance of drinking alcohol and things of this manner was a good thing. Now, you see, that's what I said. If we didn't have a standard to know what is good and what's not, 
then we might be like that man. We might think this is good. We're going forward. We're progressing. But that's not good. Here's the definition. Goodness, in the way that we need to look at, is a moral quality of a saved person. Now, that's what we need to understand. If you're a saved person, then you should have goodness. You should have that as a quality that's in you. And you develop that quality. We'll talk about how to do that as we goes along. It identifies its possessor as beneficial. So when you are good, it means that you are beneficial. Now, when I speak of goodness and kindness together, which are the two subjects that we want to look at, it's hard to separate them, isn't it? It's like trying to describe for somebody who has never had eyesight before what the color yellow looks like, or indeed, what does color? What is color? How you define that? So it's really hard for us to define. I'm uh, sometimes counseling people who are going to get married, and one thing I'll ask them to do, one of the first questions I'll say, will you please define for me what the word love means? You'll be surprised that they'll look at each other and look at me and go, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you don't know and you're going to get married? So sometimes definitions are difficult. But goodness is mainly, it is a beneficial quality. You think about that. I love that because if you're good, that means you're beneficial. If something is good for us, it's beneficial. Aren't you, aren't you tired of hearing that there's good food and bad food? Even the foods that I eat that people say are bad to me taste good. Don't tell you? So, good and bad. But to be good, it has to be beneficial. In Romans 12, 21, here's what Paul wrote. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, Christians, follow after that which is good. How do we know what's good? God's Bible, it identifies for us. It is the standard to tell us what is good and what is evil. So, we follow after good, then we demonstrate what is good. That's one of those qualities, see, that people look at us and they see Christ in us because Christ was good. We defend that which is good. We imitate that which is good. And we overcome evil with good. That's what Paul said to do, overcome evil with good. Now listen to me. There's a lot of talk today about how to defeat ISIS. And every plan that we've come up with as Americans and as our American military strategists and politicians, different ones, and we hear all kinds of things about how are you going to defeat ISIS? Well, you know, somebody goes to extreme and said, let's just nuke everything over there. Well, that's, that doesn't sound good, but to some people that's good. You know, the people in those countries love their children just like we do. Not everybody's evil over there. It's just that group that is causing harm and a lot of terror and pain, suffering in the world. And so others say, well, let's just go in and infiltrate them. And we'll, or maybe they'll say, well, let's just go and, and let's go over there and try to move our armies through and see if we can't. Well, there's a lot, of, a lot of suggestions there on how to do it. Here's one suggestion you don't hear. Let's go try to convert them. Now, who's brave enough to do it? But wouldn't it be good? Isn't that how we're eventually... Isn't that how any evil is going to be overcome is by good? Because if you return evil for evil, it just gets worse. You do something evil to me, I'm going to turn around and do evil to you. You have to do something worse, I have to do something worse. And finally, we end up killing each other. But if I return good instead of evil, then I've changed the entire situation. And Christians do the unexpected. We return evil, I mean, we return good for evil. And it catches people off guard. God is good. God is always good. 
And He demonstrates His goodness to us. And all the great things that He provides for us. One of those things is long-suffering, which somebody has dealt with. And the very fact that He endures with us in His long-suffering shows us that He loves us and He is good because He allows us the time to repent, time to correct ourselves. The world has an evil standard, but God shows us the standard for good. And that itself shows us that God is good. You see, I can't say good without confessing God because I confess that there's a standard. Also, I can't say good without confessing that there's a God because God is good. In fact, there's just an extra O in good from the word God, isn't there? Holy Spirit instructed us also about the civil government. And in that statement in Romans 13, 3 and 4, it says, Do you wish not to be afraid of the civil powers? You know what his answer is? Do that which is good. Do that which is good, and you have no reason to fear the civil powers. The power of goodness. And then in Romans 12, verse 2, Paul writes, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, there's that word, an acceptable and perfect will of God. So how do I demonstrate to people that there's a better way to live? That it's better to live good than to live for evil. And that it's better to know God's standard of good and live that way. How do I do it? By transforming. And how am I transformed? By the renewing of my mind. How? The Word of God. When I read the Word of God, there's a lot of power there. When I live the Word of God, then that power takes on and it transforms me. And it also shows others that there's a better way to live. And it's the good way. But then there's the other word, kindness. And my topic is this. It's goodness and kindness, having the right attitude, even when the soil is hard. Now, when you hear that, what did you think maybe the direction of this lesson should go? Well, I'll tell you how I, I took it and the way I'm going with it. As soon as somebody starts talking about soil, I think about the hearts of men. Because we're going to refer to uh, Matthew 13 when Jesus gives us the parable of the souls or the, the sower. And when we talk about that parable, then we see that there's different type of souls. But those souls represent the hearts of men, the attitudes of men, the disposition. So when we talk about goodness and kindness tonight, we're going to see how important they are when we do evangelism. Don't be afraid of that word. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about kindness. If I'm kind, I'm also good. Do kindness and goodness have to be together at the same time? Well, kindness is a demeanor that is... Gentle towards all. As a Christian, it is, our, it is our character to try to be gentle in everything that we do. Now, Jesus, always good, went to the temple and drove out the money changers. Why were they there? They were there conducting business in the temple. Jesus came and wanted to have prayer there. When he saw that these people were in there conducting business, they were actually profaning the place making it something common. And Jesus was angry. He made a whip of cords and he drove out the money changers. Now that was good. It was right for him to do that. That was a good and beneficial thing to do. Was he gentle? No, not gentle. Was he wrong? No, he wasn't wrong. Because these money changers cared nothing about being good or being kind. They were just concerned about being Business people. Well, I find out here in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, that God is both good and severe. 
You need to write that one down in the margin of your Bible somewhere and keep this in mind. God is both good and severe. He's good to those who follow Him and do His will. But on those who do not do His will, He's severe. On the day of judgment, we know God is good, absolutely good, absolutely good, absolutely holy. So everything that He does is good and right. On the day of judgment, do you notice in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, how it says that Jesus is going to return? Now, some people, I think, have it in their minds that when Jesus come back, comes back, he's going to be like the baby in a manger. It'll just be good and peaceful. That's wrong. When he comes back, he'll be like the 12-year-old boy in the temple, answering questions and asking questions. Nope. He'll be like the young man that was learning the trade of being a carpenter from his father. No, he, he won't come back that way. He'll come back as the one crucified on the cross then, one that's, that's showing love and mercy and, and goodness to everybody and no fear. Nope. It says when he comes back, he'll come in flaming fire with his angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and them that know or obey not his gospel. Mm. You see, that's severe, severe. But God has given time. God is good. He gives time for us to repent. He's not willing that any should perish. So He's absolutely good, and He's right in what He does. But He has the right, and His goodness demands that sin be punished. So was it right for Jesus to go into the temple and to be good, beneficial in driving them out, but He wasn't gentle? Yes, because evil deserves severity. Why? Because absolute goodness demands it. Well, let's talk for a few minutes here. We know what kindness and goodness are. In the parable of the souls in Matthew 13, if you'll turn with me here, Matthew 13, and I know that you know this parable very well. Remember with the parable that there is one central teaching that we're supposed to get from it, one main lesson, and one of the, one of the worst things we can do with the parable is to go to it and try to analyze every little thing in it and try to make everything symbolic or representative of something. If we do that, we're going to lose the meaning of the parable or we'll lose the lesson. The lesson here is for us to sow the seed, which is the Word of God. And if we will sow the seed, which is the Word of God, eventually, if we sow it enough and sow it correctly, eventually there will be a harvest. Now, I want to just concentrate on the explanation of the uh, parable of the sower because that will help us understand exactly what he's teaching. So we'll begin in verse 8. He says, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Now, stop for just a minute. The wayside, the area around the place where you're going to sow seed, the area around the place where you sow a crop is hard ground. Why? It's because that's where everybody walks. I learned when I was young... Uh, from people who had farms, that after they planted a crop, you don't go walking through the field. You don't like that. Why? Because you're, you're stomping down the possible crop that's going to come up. So you, you stay away from that and you walk around. Now, on the outside, the ground is harder. It's just as fertile, but it's harder. Now, what does this mean with the hearts of men and the mind of men? It means that sin has trampled down the mind. It's had such traffic in and out that it's become harder. When you find soil like this and you plant the seed, it is possible for it to come up. But it's more difficult. Let's, let's stay with what he's saying here. Verse 20. But he that received the seed into the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not 
yet he hath not rooted in himself, but endureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So here's the, the heart of one who is also hard. It's difficult, but the problem isn't with the fertility of the soil. It's just that it's occupied with hard ground and stony things. Things that have happened in the life of a person that caused them to be bitter. You ever run across somebody that says, I don't like the Church of Christ? And they'll tell you something like, uh, I knew a member of the Church of Christ and they told me I was going to hell. Well, I doubt that a person said that. But even if they did, then I have to try to get that person back somehow to get them to understand that everybody doesn't do that. You know, it's not the correct way to try to evangelize. You don't try to tell people where they're going. That's up to the Lord anyway. But you're not going to open any doors with that statement. Then the next one here, in verse 22, He also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and, cares, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. Nothing wrong with the fertility of the soil here, but it's already occupied. Sometimes you'll find this with men, with humans. As you're trying to evangelize and sow the seed, you'll find out that, yes, they, they receive the seed, but they've got so many cares and worries. They're also involved in so many things of the world that it just chokes out the word. But then this last one. Verse 23, But he that receiveth seed into the good grounds is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. All right, now quickly. What's the percentage rate here when you sow the seed? of how you're going to receive a seed that is going to bear fruit, actually come to fruition. It's one out of four, right? Or 25%. Now you say, well, I don't like those odds. Well, how do you like the odds of not sowing the seed at all? And sowing the seed is a good thing. Remember, we said goodness is one of those qualities of a Christian. Did Jesus tell us, and we know, you know he did because I asked you that question, it's a rhetorical question, but didn't he tell us to sow the seed? To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that receiveth that gospel, which means he believeth, and is baptized, shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. But now, wait a minute. How could a person believe? Somebody sows the seed. That's the gospel. So isn't that a quality of goodness for me to be a seed sower? Yes. A woman came to me not long ago and said, I'm afraid I'm a failure. I said, why do you think you're a failure? It sounds like a psychoanalyst, doesn't it? Why do you think you're a failure? Well, because I had a Bible study going with this uh, woman, and at the end of my Bible study, she didn't want to obey the gospel. And I told her, I said, you're not a failure. Because the Lord didn't tell us we had to baptize them. He told us we had to sow the seed. You see, we can't make somebody be baptized. We influence as much as we can, but we have to sow the seed. There's where success is. Sow the seed. Without sowing the seed, nothing happens. All right, let's go back to this. Is sowing the seed good? Yes, because good is being beneficial. Is it beneficial for me to sow the seed, the Word of God, because it would lead somebody to the truth and they would be saved? Absolutely. Is it kind? Kindness is gentleness. Whenever we are giving an answer, you remember 1 Peter 3.15? Whenever someone asks a reason for the hope that is within us, we are supposed to give an answer. With meekness and fear. We give an answer for the reason of hope that is in us. With meekness and fear. Now, meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is power under control. And that fear is, has to do with respect for God and for the person that I'm teaching to and respect for the Word. Now, hang on a second. That's kindness. That's gentleness. 
A seed sower doesn't allow rejection to stop his sowing. Did you notice that in this parable? Jesus trying to get us to understand sowing the seed is a good thing. It's kindness in action. But because there's rejection here, rejection here, rejection here, the fourth one, successful. Did you know that salesmen who are successful go through more rejection than to do acceptance? And if a salesman was going to quit after the first two or three tries and he wasn't successful and he quit, he would never make a living as a salesman. Walt Disney failed time after time after time before he was successful. Did you know Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln failed time after time, lost this election, this election, this election before he ever started making headway and before he ever became president. It's easy to Google it and look at it. What if they were quitters? So a seed sower can't be a quitter because goodness demands that we get the seed sown. Now, what about this? If I don't have the proper attitude, then I'll never sow. What is the attitude? I am in this life to help. I'm in this life to help. Let me, let me put an image in front of you here. Before the flood, and Noah's, and in fact, we may have had one here today. I hear two inches of rain, right? If you see the animals lining up two by two, you might want to consider an ark. But in the days before the ark, uh, and as it was being built, people were told that there's a flood coming. Noah's preaching, and this preaching went on for some 120 years. Now, why 120 years? Because God said, my spirit will not always strive with man, and yet his days are 120 years. All right. It's to give them time to repent. And I promise you the message of Noah contained at least this, something like this. Repent. Repent, turn to God, get on this ark, and be saved from certain destruction. God's bringing a flood. Now, I don't know if they saw rain. There's always people who say they hadn't seen rain. Maybe so. Whether they had seen it or not, they didn't believe because how many people got on the ark? Eight. Now, let's go to Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem foretold by Christ told his disciples what to look for, the signs that would be there, and told them, when you see the eagles gather, you get out, speaking about the Roman army. My question is this. Why did they stay in Jerusalem anyway? You know? Why were they in Jerusalem? And even when the uh, Roman army came at the first time, the Christians were there. But Titus had come up to surround the city, but he heard that there was uh, some turmoil back in Rome, he went back to Rome, pulled his forces back. During that time is when Christians got out of Jerusalem because they follow what the Lord said. But see, do you know why they were there to start with? Why they stayed until the Roman army came up, knowing that the Lord said it's going to be destroyed? To try to convert people. Try to get those in Jerusalem, their brothers, saying, listen, you need to know. Destruction's coming. You need to get ready and get out of here. Historians tell us that the Christians got out. No Christians died in Jerusalem, and they went to a place initially called Pella, and they escaped. Why? Because the Lord told them to. Here's what I'm telling you. Evangelism has always been the key to rescue. And the way evangelism works is it's from a Christian's lips to somebody's ears. In the case of Cornelius, who was called a good man, which means he was beneficial, and yet he did not know exactly what to do to become a Christian. And we have the Word of God coming to him, not in the form of an angel, though an angel did appear to him, as it appeared to Peter. But the angel didn't solve the problem. 
The angel didn't say, well, I'm just going to tell you what the gospel is and I'm going to command you to obey it. Didn't do it that way. But the angel got Peter, the man with the message, in contact with Cornelius, the man who needed to hear it. And you remember what it says? He will tell you words by which you will be saved. From human lips to human ears. Now, if we're going to say that we're good, then don't we have to do the will of the Father? Certainly we do. We won't enter heaven just because we're good, but because we do the will of the Father, which is a sign of goodness. Goodness and kindness help us to develop patience. And the reason that's important is because the value of a soul means that people take time. I do Bible studies as much as I can, not because I'm better than anybody at all, but it's because I'm what I'm supposed to do. Not because I'm a preacher. It's because I'm what I'm supposed to do. When Jesus said, go on to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, I believe what he said. Don't you? I know you do. But we have a fear of the word evangelism. Evangelize. What does that mean? That means getting close to somebody's face and really having an argument? No. Kindness. Gentleness. What is it uh, when I was little, uh, they would say you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar? I have never, and I wouldn't do this, but I have never been rude to somebody and thought I was going to get a Bible study out of it. But gentleness works. Kindness works. When you do benevolence, do you know that benevolence is a type of evangelism? It is. It opens doors. It shows people how much you care. And when they know how much you care, then they care about what you believe. That's why we do evangelism and benevolence together often. Evangelism takes time. It takes care. It takes commitment. I always tell the person that I'm going to study with, I always tell them because this is good, this is beneficial for them, that I'm going to be the best teacher that I can be for them. I also tell them that I'm going to be committed to our study. And I ask them to do the same thing. I also remind them that Satan will find some way to stop the study. And so they need to be aware and stay committed to it. And also tell them that I want to go to heaven and I want them to go to heaven too. Does it sound good? It sounds good to them. And it works. I have seen a lot of power in the gospel. But it's mainly because of the goodness and kindness that is behind the reason for our evangelizing. So my attitude of goodness and kindness shows... God to them. You'd be surprised how many people right now are looking for God. Now, they're looking in the wrong places, or they don't know where to look. But generally speaking, when they see good people, when they see kind people, they immediately associate that with being godly people. And so people who are looking for God will seek out godly people to lead them to God. Now, tell me, is it important to be good and have goodness in your life? Yes. Is it important to have kindness and show kindness to others? Yes. Why? It just might be the thing that turns them around. It might be the thing that leads them to a knowledge of the truth. So here's what we have to do, deal with. People are tough. Oftentimes people are hard, and that's what my lesson's about. We have the right attitude even when the soul is hard. Well, what about it whenever you try to talk to somebody about religion, Try to talk to somebody about God, about salvation. And you want to get them interested so you can study with them, and they don't care anything about it. Well, I understand that they're having a difficult time. Maybe, maybe they don't understand exactly what's at stake here. There's probably a lot of reasons. Maybe they don't trust anybody. Maybe they've got their shields up and nobody's getting in. I run across that too. But here's the thing about goodness and kindness. They persevere. 
they don't quit. Because of the love that we have for God, we are motivated. And so we give that person some space. And then we come back later and ask. But I'll tell you this, I have noticed. I have noticed this. When you pray, Lord, give me somebody. Put somebody in front of me that needs to hear the gospel. If you pray that, it'll happen. But you don't get the easy person. You don't always get the easy person to convert. You get the tough ones. It's almost to me like God is saying, all right, here's your person. Here's the person that needs to hear the message. Now let goodness and kindness conquer this person. Now what is it Paul said? We don't overcome good with evil, but rather evil with good. And we don't repay evil for evil, but we repay evil with good. The only way we're going to overcome evil is with the goodness. The goodness because it shows them Christ in us. So when they're rebellious, then I have to bide my time. I keep in contact with them. But I know that something is going to happen that at least it might cause a change. You know, an injury, an illness, a loss, and then I'm back. Would you like to study? Let's study. Life doesn't have to be bad. You don't have to look at life as if it's something negative all the time and you wish you were out of this life because life is actually good. Let me tell you something else about our goodness, you and I. It makes life worth living when we know what our purpose is. I'm running long, aren't I? Okay, I'm going to drop down here. I want us to look at a few things. Look at John 8 with me. A few things, then I'm going to close. John 8. Uh, beginning verse 1, here's the occasion where uh, they have caught this woman, and they said they caught her in adultery. In fact, their statement is, we caught her in the very act. And I want you to see the goodness and kindness, the gentleness and the beneficial characteristic of Jesus in handling this occasion. Because they brought this woman and, I suppose, threw her down and had no respect whatsoever for this woman. Now, I notice they didn't bring the man involved, and yet the law of Moses would say to stone both of them if that was the case. And so that's the question they asked. They said, now listen, the law of Moses said to stone her. She ought to be stoned. But what do you say? So Jesus knelt down and rolled on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. So then he stood up and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone first at her. Oh, boy. And so the, the older ones in the group knew that they were had. They backed away. Pretty soon they all left. Jesus stands up and says, Woman, where are your accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Isn't that kindness and, and goodness here? You see this goodness? And something else Jesus does is bring the goodness out of this woman. And notice how he addresses her sin with kindness. Look at this. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I suspect that that turned this woman's life around. You see, he wasn't harsh. It, it, it wasn't not a call to be harsh here or severe. It was a call to bring goodness out of this woman so she could see that there's a better way to live. In John 4, one other place, I'll just refer to it. You remember the woman at the well in Samaria? And Jesus goes there and he sits by the well. Now, here's the goodness because goodness means that we have a desire to be beneficial. And so Jesus sits by the well. It's a good place. Jesus is hungry and he's thirsty and he's tired. He's been walking all morning. He sits by the well at a strategic point. He knows that people are going to come to the well. 
And so if you're going to do evangelism, put yourself in a strategic place. Jesus sits there. Here comes a woman, and she's going to get water in her water pot. And Jesus begins the conversation. Remember, she's Samaritan. He's Jewish. Give me a drink. Simple. It stuns her. Wait a minute. You're a Jew, and you're asking me, a Samaritan, to give you a drink? He's able to lead the conversation into living water, which interests her. And she goes from thinking he's just a stranger and a man to thinking he's a prophet to thinking this must be the Son of God. A lot of people have been brought to Jesus afterwards because of what this woman went in and reported about Jesus. But let me show you some things that Jesus broke down. His goodness and kindness to do evangelism. He broke down the gender barrier. You were not supposed to talk to a woman, a woman you didn't know, especially in daylight in a strange town, uh, because that was considered taboo. It was considered wrong. He broke down that barrier. You didn't talk to someone who was of a different race. You see, they considered the Samaritans a different race, half-breeds when they were being derogatory. So he broke down that barrier. Then he broke down the religious barrier as he introduced to her that there is a right way to worship, there is a right way to live, that there is one God. Do you see this? Kindness and goodness. He was beneficial and he was gentle. And he was able to speak to this woman. Do we have classes coming back in? No, okay. All right. We have the invitation song uh, that we're going to sing. And I want to conclude by talking about three words. Three words that we misunderstand. The first one is the word final. Final. A lot of people uh, hear the word final. I use the word final in sermons, in teaching and things. The Bible uses the term final. Do we know what it means? I don't think that we do. I don't think we understand it. Here's the reason. It's because in the mail you get something that says, this is your final notice because you owe a bill. No, it's not, because they want their money. You know what they'll do? They'll send you another notice. So it's not really all that final. We play something called the Final Four in college basketball. It comes down to the Final Four, right? And then we determine who the winner is. Do you know we do it next year, too? It's not that final. You take the finals at school. It's called The testing is called the finals. And so we're sick. We don't get to take them. Well, guess what? Sometimes you can make it up. It's not so final. It didn't have to do it on that day. No. But the Bible speaks about final, and final means... No more. There is no more time. It's final. When Christ comes, this earth ends. Final. Do you understand it now? That means the end. Here's another word. It's the word eternal and eternity. I don't know that we as humans can fathom what that means because it is the absence of time. God is not restrained by time as humans are. God is not concerned about time the way we are. God created time, but he is not bound by it. But we are. I don't wear a watch anymore because I have a smartphone. You know, it tells me what time it is and what to do. But, you know, a smartphone can show you the seconds, or if you program it, you can show hundreds of seconds and whatever. Time. We're concerned with it. But what about when there's no more time? What does that mean? Forever. Eternity. You see, the Bible speaks about eternal life or eternal death. I'm concerned about that. Goodness demands that I'm concerned about that. My gentleness. 
causes me to be concerned about that because I want others to escape eternal loss. Here's the last word. Prepared. We don't fully understand it. We need to define it. Prepared means to be ready ahead of the due time. When I was in high school, I would have to do book reports and various things and homework. And you know when i do my homework? Right before it was class time. I'd get there and I'd try to do And guess what? I didn't make good grades because I did that. Had to do a book report one time. I failed to do it. It's going to be an oral book report. I ran into the library. I picked up a book that, was, uh, that I thought I knew. It was the, the Three Musketeers. So I'd always seen cartoons and various things about the Three Musketeers. So I went in there and thought, well, I showed them the book. And I went to do my oral book report. And, of course, it was disastrous. I was not prepared. Listen to me. When Jesus comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God, those who obey not the gospel, with his angels, it's too late. You can't call me then. It won't be any cell service. I'm not going to the building to see you. It's too late. You see, the time to prepare is now, before the time arrives. Now, in this audience, you've, you've heard me speak. I'm going to encourage you to do something. If you're not ready for eternity, you're not ready for Christ to come back. Maybe you don't know what that means. By all means, you can talk to me before I leave here. Or talk to some of these great people here. They can tell you. They can show you. You see, we'll share the scriptures with you. And you'll see that these scriptures, they lead us to eternal life. They're the map to heaven. And they show us the way. So as we sing this invitation song, would you not be honest with yourself? At least for once, be honest with yourself. Either I'm prepared for eternity or I'm not. Either I'm prepared for the final day or I'm not. You see, if I'm not prepared, then there's nothing that God can do beyond that. He's already laid everything out on the table, everything for you to do. If you refuse that, then you've refused eternal life. As we stand and as we sing.